Hello, and welcome to this event to discuss how the government can work with the private sector to help levelling up. My name is Gemma Tetlow, I'm Chief Economist here at the Institute for Government, and I'm really pleased that you're able to join us today for what's turned out to be an extremely timely event uh, on this subject, coming hot on the heels of the government's white paper today. The government has big ambitions to level up living standards across the UK, but it clearly can't do this on its own. It's going to need the private sector to change where it channels its investment and where it focuses act activities in ways that haven't happened in the past. So I'm really pleased that we can be here today to discuss how the government can work with the private sector to achieve the outcomes that it wants in terms of levelling up living standards. And really pleased that we are able to partner today with Big Society Capital on this subject to discuss particularly how social en en investment can help as part of that. And to dig into these issues, we have four excellent panellists with us today. Um, on the screen, we have Kevin Hollenrake, who is Conservative MP for Thirsk and Malton, and member of the House of Commons Treasury Select Committee and co-chair of the all-party parliamentary group on fair business banking. In the room, we have Stephen Muirs, who is CEO of Big Society Capital, and also Sarah Williams, who is CEO of the Staffordshire Chambers of Commerce. And also on the screen is John Rothmel, who is Director of Strategy, Research and Economy at Greater Manchester Combined Authority. Before we uh, get into the discussions, just a few brief housekeeping notes. Uh, firstly, welcome to our very small in-person audience. Thank you for helping us as we slowly feel our way back towards doing more face-to-face -face, uh, things at the moment. You're our first um, small in-person audience this year, so thank you very much for helping us experiment with this. Um, for those of you watching online, please do start sending in your questions using the Q&A panel on the right-hand side of your screen. If you see a question that's already been asked that's similar to one you wanted to ask, please just up-like it so that we know that that's popular and we can put those to the panellists. Um, if you feel happy to do so, please do tell us where you're tuning in from and what your name is, because um, it's always interesting to know who we're speaking to. We'll also be live-tweeting today's event from at IFG Events using the hashtag IFG Leveling Up, so please do follow and tweet along. Today's event is obviously on the record and the video and audio recording of the event will be available on our website within 24 hours if you want to listen back or miss any of it. So without further ado, I'll come to my panellists. Um, Sarah, let me start with you. What's your perception of businesses' appetite for working with the government on levelling up? Oh, I think it's, it's extreme, actually. I think uh, for somewhere like Stoke and Staffordshire, uh, where I'm based, uh, the idea that spatial um, economies is actually part of the government's policy for the first time is fantastic. I think it's an area that uh, businesses have seen where other areas have apparently done better. Um, and so I think there is a real appetite for getting engaged with the whole agenda on all of this. And I think also it, it affects how they're going to work with their suppliers, their customers and their employees. So it, it is really absolutely key for them that those areas where they are working do get levelled up. And John, from your perspective, working within local government, how is local government working with businesses to attract investments that will help to boost growth in your area? Yeah, thanks, Gemma, and thank you for the, the invitation to, uh, to come and join the discussion today. And as you said at the beginning, it's very well-timed and topical given the uh, the launch of the white paper. I did, I did, answer to your question, I, I, I go back to something that um, Sir Howard Bernstein used to say a lot when he was uh, uh, chief exec at uh, Manchester City Council, but still says that if, what we want are places where people want to live, where they want to grow a business and they want to invest. And that, that's, I think that in a nutshell is, is, is what it's about. And you know, clearly a lot of different uh, elements go into that. And it's not nearly as simple as it sounds. But I think in a, in a greater Manchester context where we've been thinking about levelling up, not just at a, a national level, but at a, within the city region as well, in places like um, uh, Bolton, Bury, Oldham, Rochdale, the, um, partly it's about setting priorities and a, a direction a very a very clear plan which the um, which can be you know, developed jointly with the the private sector but then gives gives everyone looking to invest a, a sense of what the, those priorities are where are we going um, I think that includes a, a, a clear view of the places where we uh, where we're looking for that that growth and investment to happen 
I mean, tra- traditionally in, in Manchester, anyone who's been to Manchester over the last few years will have seen an absolute transformation of the uh, uh, the city centre in, in Manchester and, and Salford. But also now there's you know the uh, the Stockport Mayoral Development Corporation, um, the Northern Gateway um, uh, development across uh, Rochdale, parts of Bury into Oldham. Um, so so having a sort of a clear view of what we're trying to do and where we're trying to do it to, to then work with private sector partners to do that. And then some of the, the institutions as well that allow that to happen. Um, we, we've had uh, MIDAS, the, the Inward Investment Agency in Greater Manchester, I think about 20, 20 or so years now, um, working with the private sector to help with that and, and also increasingly with the Department for International Trade and the, the role of the mayor actually has, has had quite a big impact there in terms of those uh, international uh, relationships and investment. Investment. And, and I, th- I think the, all of that is, is coming together in a way in the, um, the levelling up white paper uh, announcements today. One, one, of the, um, one of the main announcements, certainly from our point of view, is the, the innovation accelerators. Uh, there'll be three of those um, uh, piloted, one for Greater Manchester, West Midlands and Glasgow. And I think this has, from our point of view, come out of a lot of work over the last 18 months or so on something called Innovation Greater Manchester. And that is led by businesses and our universities looking at taking our innovation strengths and assets. But how do we put those into practice? How do we um, implement those in a way that helps drive business growth in some of those um, uh, in some of those growth locations I was talking about? Um, and that, that is focused squarely on the levelling up agenda. It's, it's the private sector taking the lead um, in in some of those places. And I, I mentioned the Northern Gateway earlier, the um, uh, the Advanced Manufacturing Productivity Institute, which has just been set up there, has been invested in both by government and was developed and invested in by the private sector. And I think it's the fact that that has, has chimed so strongly with the government view of the role of the private sector and private sector investment in levelling up as part of the reason we're getting this this announcement today on the, um, on the innovation accelerators. And um, we, we don't underestimate the the uh, the implications of delivering that and the challenges around putting it into practice. But I think it is a it, it's an exciting new way in which the uh, the private sector investment can contribute to this agenda. Um, so I think it's uh, it's particularly topical today. Stephen, what's the role of social investment particularly in levelling up, and what do you most need from the government to help with your sector? Thanks, Gemma, and thanks very much for hosting, hosting us today. I think the question around the private sector contribution to tackling regional disparities is sort of a very old one in public policy, and there's always been inward investment and private, private investment, which often hasn't benefited some of the communities in which it's ended up through you know, creating low-quality jobs, being extractive business models that, that take returns away from those communities. But I think what's really interesting now is we're seeing a, a real shift among asset owners who want to invest in a way that not only generates a financial return, but also generates a real sustainable social benefit, particularly for parts of the country that maybe have missed out in the past. And coupled with that sort of shift in investor sentiment, we've got increasing examples of how to actually do that, how to invest in a way that does drive real social impact uh, and support of social mission organisations across the country. And just to pick out a couple of, sort of brief examples, I can uh, elucidate more later if people are interested. Uh, one is the work of the Community Development Finance Institutions, or, or CDFIs. So these are you know, um, non-profit lenders that lend to individuals, and particularly sort of small micro-businesses, often in the most deprived communities, areas where mainstream finance has often turned its back. Uh, and actually, the, the record there in terms of creating jobs in areas of deprivation is very strong, of supporting minority and women-owned businesses is very strong. And there's a real partnership there between private sector and government, where you see private sector capital, capital and capital for social investors like ourselves potentially coming in, but government support's been vital, uh, often in the past through the EU, more recently through the British Business Bank and some of its guarantee programmes, and there's definitely a, a big opportunity around that. Uh, another area that a lot of commentators have seen as important in levelling up is uh, around building, building community institutions uh, and community anchors, and we're talking about things like local sports clubs, arts facilities, culture, community centres, these, these kind of things are important to strengthening communities across the country. I think often in the past, government has grant-funded a lot of those organisations, and that's absolutely right, and grant-funding is essential, but what we've increasingly seen is the way you can make grant go further and, and use it more effectively and build more sustainable organisations for the long term by combining grant with investment finance, often in a, in a blend to create a low-cost, sustainable uh, source of financing over the long term. 
for example, we have a, a partnership with um, Sports England and British Gymnastics, which combines some grant from them, with some investment capital from us to support the growth of gymnastics facilities, particularly in communities where sports facilities like that have often been missing uh, in the past, and that makes the grant go further and, say, build institutions that are more sustainable for the long term. So and we've got these real examples of bringing together a kind of increasing social motivations behind some piece of capital with government getting involved, with the, the, the social sector sort of thinking about how to do things differently and bringing all that together, those examples could be taken to you know, double, five times, ten times over the next few years and the opportunity is very large. And Kevin, finally to you, how much do you think the government has thought about the role of the private sector within levelling up and how it can leverage that most effectively? Um, well, it has, but not enough. I think too often we talk about big public sector infrastructure projects, uh, roads, railways, uh, town centre regeneration, that kind of stuff, which is all public sector money. But um, um, Mark Littlewood of the IEA made a point in, a, in an article in the Times a few months ago, um, if it was all about connectivity, why isn't Doncaster more prosperous? Because it's very well connected. Roads, railway, all kind of stuff, uh, airport, but it's not very prosperous. And that's not any uh, criticism of Doncaster itself. It just shows that you need the, public, the private sector to come in alongside the public sector. I think I also say not enough because I think we've all got to recognise the scale of the challenge here. The economic disparity in uh, gross value added, so productivity per head, between London, the southeast, and the northeast is as large as it was between East and West Germany prior to reunification. That took three decades and two trillion dollars to narrow that gap, and it still isn't fully narrowed. So, um, I mean, and we are so regionally imbalanced in this country, and that's an illustration of it. Um, we talked about, uh, particularly about the high growth, fast growth companies, as Andy then said, the vast majority of those are located in London, the Southeast. 50% of all uh, angel investors are based in London, the Southeast. And this is some of the, these are some of the barriers to private sector investment. They are absolutely critical to full to see proper private sector investment. So in my view, as well as some things we've talked about, some really good things, things like the R&D spend, you're going to go 40% of it in the regions in the white paper today, um, and those accelerators, uh, which John talked about before, all those things are really good. But for me, I, would like, I think we need lots more incentives for people to invest, to start up, scale up, and invest in businesses in regions of low prosperity and low productivity. That's fantastic, actually. That, that was the point I was wanted to come to, actually, for all of you, is how much is this really about public money, um, whether that's in the form of guarantees or redirecting R&D spending to different parts of the country? And how much can you see that there are actually other areas where government could make changes to remove barriers that currently there to private investment or do something that is not simply just spending money to galvanise private sector activity? Um, I, I, think there's a, I think that's a really good point because I think one of the issues that is um, one of the things I was quite pleased to see in the levelling up press release um, uh, was that uh, there's going to also be a procurement act that comes out and government are going to look at how they procure stuff. They've already got some of the levers which they just don't use very effectively so I think the social value act and some of the work around all of that could be used much more effectively to deliver extra value um, on what the government is already spending. So I think there is one area where that, that needs to be done. I think also the idea that the Procurement Act is going to mean that smaller businesses and regionally based businesses get a, a shot at bidding for uh, more government contracts and more work will be really important. However, alongside all of that, there needs to be some capacity building for those businesses who are out in those areas. They haven't got the uh, um, structures, Many of them have never tackled any of this before. So just to announce something, then expect businesses to be able to engage in it is going to be really difficult. And I think that there's going to have to be some sort of, for want of a better word, capacity building around all of that so that businesses can take advantage of the levers that the levelling up fund, levelling up white paper has put into their hands. So I think that's a, a, a key point um, for, for, uh, from that point of view. I think the other bit as well is we're talking about um, I'm talking about businesses in a particular way, which are around the businesses that I know as my chamber members, but there are also uh, you know, investors, developers who may come from, from different regions, who have different expectations um, and bring different schemes with them. And I think that has to be managed very carefully. You can't just 
Dumper King's Cross style <laughs> development in the middle of, 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 of Barnsley, for example, um, or Stoke. Uh, you need to have some understanding about what that's going to mean. And I think, therefore, local authorities and the government and those investors and developers have to work really carefully to make sure that it is appropriate and can deliver more than just a bright, shiny building. Stephen, I mean, you touched on this already, but... Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and I want to slightly build on the point that, that Sarah made about... I think a lot of this is less about government spending more money, but about government spending money that's already spending is going to spend anyway differently and more effectively. And the procurement is one, one great example. I think the other example I'd play in is, is around government focusing on spending on outcomes, not on, on micromanaged inputs. And uh, there's lots of, there are increasing examples where commissioners commissioning services that particularly supporting people with sort of multiple and complex needs, um, where actually individual service commissioning hasn't tended to support them very well. We're taking a much more person-centred, outcomes-based view of what they're trying to achieve, achieve with the money, uh, and then enabling actually socially motivated investors to provide the upfront costs for running the services that then deliver the outcomes that they get, get paid for. And I don't want to embarrass John too much, but actually Greater Manchester has done some, some great work in this area. Um, as an example, the Greater Manchester Homes Partnership, which uh, focuses on supporting young people at very high risk of homelessness, a very, very compl complex needs. And what they've done there is take a very sort of flexible outcomes-based approach. Then investors, including, including ourselves, have provided upfront cash with a sort of partnership of local, local organisations, housing associations, charities, who deliver those support services. And it's been supported 270 young people successfully so far, been doing so well that GMC are now expanding that and rolling it out to over a thousand people so it's government taking money that you're going to spend anyway it's probably less than you might have had to spend anyway uh, and supplying it differently in a way that enables investment to enable a more flexible mode of delivery that's delivering a better outcome so yeah i don't think government needs to write vast new checks we need to look at some of the checks it's writing now and just do it a different way john it's an interesting point manchester is often pointed to as a sort of poster child of growth development that has happened in the past are there things that you've been able to do that actually you think other parts of the country could do more effectively already? And also, are there things that you've butted up against constraints that you really need central government to adjust the playing field so you can really achieve more? I think the, the thing to remember is that the, the Greater Manchester example is, is always, it, it's, it, it's been 30 years in the making. I mean, some of the institutions I was talking about and they, the, the sort of the approach to place and, and joining up across institutions and um, and ways of working is, is decades in the making. So it, it certainly, it's it's very challenging to, to, to sort of replicate and do that quickly. This is, there's not a sort of a, a quick win in that. Um, I think I, I, I agree with some of the, the points that Stephen was making about the, the, the I mean, clearly the quantum of investment does matter and it's it, it's necessary even if it's not sufficient but also the the way that that investment happens what one of our our challenges is always how do you bring together different funding streams um and different competitive pots together to give that sort of person-centered approach or place-centered approach and join all that that up and a huge amount of work in greater manchester goes into trying to line all of that up and and i think over the last few years there's been a last couple of years there's central government has gone even further down the route of very small pots of competitive funding which are then take a lot of resource bidding into for a start and then when they're allocated are then very hard to join up you end up with you know a project having to draw on a whole range of different pots i think there are signs in the white the white paper today recognizes that i think it's, it's got an example of a, a county council that ha was having to bid into 60 different 61 different pots of funding i think for the uh, to draw things together there's a sign of a shift in another a, a recognition of that and a shift away from it quite whether that's going to be how that's going to look in reality whether that's going to be enforced across government whether different departments are going to be able to to wean themselves off lots of small pots which are unjoined up but based around individual programs and allow some of that joining up i think is a is going to be a big question for for how the white paper is implemented kevin on that point how do you think the politics of this are going to play out is there an appetite within Westminster to hand over that power, give more devolved decision-making powers out? Is, is that going to be realistic? Uh, well, there is now. I think you went through some lumps and bumps, really. Uh, clearly, George Osborne and David Cameron thought so. Theresa May is less keen. It's clear now Michael Gove and the Prime Minister are very keen in devolving powers back to 
uh, local areas again, principally through elected mayors, but not exclusively so. They're going to do these county deals as well, apparently, which I really welcome. I mean, you know, uh, we've seen some great examples of elected mayors around the country, Andy Street, Andy Burnham, Ben Houchin. Um, what, one thing we've got to really accept here is the potential for misallocation of capital. So government notoriously, as it said, politicians are not very good at picking winners, but losers are very good at picking politicians. So we've got to be really careful that we do um, not simply stick the money in ourselves, public money, and hope it's going to work. So A, having somebody to devolve um, projects, somebody who's, who's uh, got the responsibility at a devolved level, elected politician, elected mayor, to say, right, this is the project I want and can make the argument with government. So if somebody owns that project, I think that's really important because, you know, Ben Houch is a good example. He's really, uh, you know, stakes his reputation on, on Teesside International Airport working and on the, on the Tees Works, the regeneration of the docks working there. So, you know, that's that's great that he's willing to do that and stick put his neck on the line. Um, but I'd like to see really, we've got UK Investment Bank, of course, which again, crowds in capital, which is good. So it's not all public money, but it will facilitate projects that shouldn't work, wouldn't come to fruition otherwise. But other than that, I'm really keen on more incentives um, things like enhanced enterprise investment scheme rules for the, some of the more deprived areas, um, more match capital for business angels, for example. So uh, enterprise zones, which encourage super enterprise zones, a bit like kind of enterprise zones we have now, but much bigger that cover evolved regions, perhaps as large as, as that. So you could really say as a business, you've got really incentive to invest, start up, scale up in those areas. So that, I think, is more likely to be successful and public money is less like, likely to go to waste if it is effectively, if it crowd, crowds in that private sector money. Sarah, do you agree with that? Oh, well? absolutely, yes. I couldn't have said it better myself. No, I think that's absolutely <laughs> fantastic. I think the other bit that I think is also important is that government makes is aware about how different policies that they've already announced will overlap with some of this. Mm. And one of the concerns that we have particularly is what's going to happen with free ports. Great idea, but if they are in areas which then suck out those successful businesses from the areas that they're trying to level up, then they, you are going to have a, a, a detrimental effect on some of those areas. Um, and so I think there are, there are just some of those bits of joining up to understand what, what, what the, the social, spatial, spatial disparities will, will look like um, as a result of all of that. So, um, yeah, but I, know, I think the idea of incentives is really good. I think we should do more about all of that. Um, there is a bit that I would just like to just talk mm. about slightly differently, which is around the education skills side. Mm. Um, skills is a really big issue. Um, I was really pleased to see in the, um, the, draft, the information that I've seen about the levelling up white paper around the work that's going to be done around education. Um, and I think there is a... a I've worked in, with businesses for the last 30 years. All they ever say is, give me some kids who can read and write. I was absolutely shocked that we still are having that battle. And I think that that is a real indictment on us all that we haven't actually managed to have a generation of people who are not suffering from that. Because that is one of the most fundamental things that will change um, those areas that we're talking about around levelling up, is that education attainment. Uh, and so I think that's really good that it's in there. It's a shame that, we, that it is still in there. Yes, I mean, is that something that you come across? Do your social investments get into educational? Uh, yeah, I mean, there are certainly um, quite a lot of organisations that we, we back who are trying to tackle some of those questions around education and skills. And I think, um, for me, the, the, the interesting test there is, is whether we're going to broaden out our focus there beyond just the school system. I think there's been a, a bit of a tendency to assume the solution to an educational skills gap lies in school. Uh, and as a lot of evidence over the years has told us, actually, it's, it's much broader than that. And you need uh, involvement, particularly in this where I guess, some of the work we do comes in uh, third sector, civil society organisations that are providing different activities, support, input to, to families, to kids uh, out, outside the school system in the rest of their life. Because actually, uh, if you're going to succeed and thrive and get a good education, get a good job, uh, it, it's that holistic development of, of people. And then that's where I think the, uh, the civil society plays a key role, actually. And again, social investment has been able to back some of that. Mm. I had a question for you, um, Stephen. That do you do you see the future of social investment as really filling a gap that traditional investors don't want to fill, or do you think there's growing appetite amongst investors of all varieties to perhaps get involved in investing in areas that they haven't traditionally done so? I, I, th I think the latter. I mean, we're we're seeing an increasing appetite for 
investors who, you know, quote-unquote mainstream institutions wanting to have a social impact. And ultimately, this comes back to who, whose money is it? And, and actually, you know, pension funds are getting pressure from people whose pensioners to say, well, you know, it's great that I'm, my money's being invested, but what's it achieving along the way? Can we, as well as the financial return, can we also get, get some, some social impact out of this? So, you know, for example, we're, we're, there's a number of uh, investments in affordable um, housing for sort of more vulnerable groups where we're working with, with pension funds, with other commercial investors. Actually, they are looking to do something different, and they're seeing... I think quite rightly, the, sort of the, the future wave of this is that impact is going to be up there alongside financial return and, and sort of environmental concerns, clearly, which are also big in the investment world around, around, around that. So, yeah, there is definitely a, an increasing trend towards more mainstream, more commercial investors thinking that this is part of what they need to do. And that's something the government can harness. And I think the government is already sort of thinking about that, but there's lots of opportunity to nudge bits of policy and nudge bits of government spending around to sort of harness that wave that is potentially coming towards things that are socially beneficial. Well, any particular examples you would point to? Uh, yeah, so an example I'd point to would be um, we, we've recently partnered with um, uh, what is now the Leveling Up Department around, around housing. So uh, <coughs> people probably be aware that during the pandemic there was a programme called Everyone In that brought uh, rough sleepers in off the streets. A lot of them ended up in, in hotels, actually, which were empty at the time. And there was this whole big question about what would the housing solution be afterwards. Uh, you know, we didn't want people to go back onto the streets. We needed st stable accommodation uh, and a sort of properly designed, structured path out, out of homelessness. Uh, and we then brought together uh, 15 million from the central government, 15 million of our money. We're then crucially with both some local government investors and some private investors, which has now got to, I think, it's 80 million plus and still growing, a fund that is then purchasing properties, working with housing associations, with charities to provide people with a sort of stable route forward. And that's where yeah, you're combining some government money centrally, some government money locally, some social investment money and some, yeah, some sort of what traditionally would have been seen as pure private capital and actually addressing a social problem in a way that creates a, a sustainable financial return, but crucially is housing people who'd otherwise probably be in B&Bs, temporary accommodation, something much, much worse. So that's the kind of thing I'm really excited about. And so that's the sort of stuff that is already possible. You don't need changes in rules, but you need a change no. in attitude. Yeah, yeah. Go government needs to be creative. I mean, you know, hats off to the department there. They, they'd be really creative about how they'd use the money. They haven't, haven't spent any more money. It was money they were going to spend, but they're getting more leverage for it and building something that's more sustainable. Right. I want to come back um, to a point that John raised about sort of clarity of objectives and direction to allow the private sector to come in and know what the future is going to look like. Do you, how much do you all think this really is a a long-term change of direction that there's now certainty that this is going to remain a priority. I mean, Kevin, I'll start with you from the, within Parliament. Do you think... Yeah, wow, okay. Up? Well, politics in this country is not known for its kind of long-termism. Um, we tend to move from electoral cycle to electoral cycle, don't we? But, um, I mean, personally, I, I mean, this is music to my ears. I mean, it's a whole thing, the whole levelling up thing. It's something I've campaigned for since I've become a member of Parliament in 2015. Fair deal for the North. Um, I think it's got it's absolutely the right thing to do economically, but also it's the right thing to do politically. So I think the two things coincide. So I really hope this will feature in every election campaign, every election manifesto, um, you know, for uh, uh, for many decades to come. I think one thing we've got to accept, as I said right at the start, every government wants to level up, of course, but then they suddenly see the price tag of it and the timescales around it. It is quite daunting. So we've got to have the courage of our convictions. Um, I think the couple of things the government's done really should get some credit for is a the scale of infrastructure investment across the country, 640 billion in this parliament, which is record levels, but also the change of the green book formula in terms of where that money is spent. That's phenomenally important. That should mean we get some pro projects delivered as well that we can really get private sector investment in the back on the back of. One thing I was really disappointed in the government not deciding to do is a proper Northern Powerhouse Rail project from Leeds through Bradford to Manchester. Because what you would have got there, you'd have got a shiny new station in the middle of Bradford, railway station, just like we got a shiny new station at King's Cross, for example, which is one I use, and all the private sector investment that comes in on the back of it. It's phenomenal what's happened to King's Cross. Anybody who's been going down there for decades, that's what we want to see in places like Bradford. So we've really got to have the courage of our convictions and get through this. One of the other things we, we probably haven't discussed quite as much as we should so far is access to capital, SMEs' access to capital. That's so important in this conversation. We, re, we tend to just rely on the big commercial banks in this country. Stephen um, is a, uh, you know, is, does a very good job in getting money out to 
the CDFIs, community development finance institutions, that can definitely provide capital to SMEs where they can't get it from commercial banks or don't want to borrow from commercial banks because they are very concerned about them. We were also reporting the APPG for Fair Business Banking on this. Uh, it's called Scale Up to Level Up, and it's about increasing the amount of availability of SME finance to businesses from a trusted source. So, um, and we think CDFIs, but also something that we haven't got in the UK, that every other G7 country has got and relies upon are regional mutual banks. So for me, for example, we should have a Yorkshire Regional Mutual Bank where depositors can put money in, local depositors or any depositors from anywhere, but, but they lend money into the productive economy in Yorkshire and also work on financial inclusion for, for uh, citizens who otherwise would be excluded for other, for other reasons in terms of the not a commercial imperative for the big banks. Things like that tie into those social objectives as well as, as the wider objective of levelling up. And on that point, is there something lacking in the um, legislative landscape that prohibits those from happening? Um, something else? Um, actually, uh, something lacking is money, of course. But this is, I mean, to set up a, a Yorkshire Regional Mutual Bank, and we're making progress. We've got even more orders who's from the uh, Business Enterprise Fund, who's based in Bradford, a CDFI, really keen to, to lead this, a Yorkshire Regional Mutual Bank. So we've got good experience in terms of the people who could operate them. Um, they just need some pump prime money, um, probably about 20 to 30 million minimum, maybe the more the merrier. But uh, it could be put in as a loan from the Treasury or from dormant assets or from pension funds or whatever. And, uh, and that money comes back. These things make a surplus, can return the capital to the people who, uh, who pump prime the investment. Um, so it just needs a recognition that this should be part of the SME finance landscape. We are, as, S as Rishi Sunak once said, he was, when his backbenching report, he wrote, we are the number one in the G7, uh, sorry, in the OECD for startups and number 13 out of 14 that were studied in this study for scale-ups. So the businesses that are, uh, have 10 employees within three years, there's something goes wrong after that startup happens. And a lot of that can be explained, I think, because the stat in the report is 73% of businesses, SMEs in the UK, would rather grow more slowly than borrow. Because there is a trust, partially, because there's a trust factor between commercial banks who tend to look after their own interests in the down cycles, withdrawing capital to SMEs, um, and, the, and, and the businesses uh, that, should, that might like to borrow from them. They're thinking that finance might be pulled in difficult times. So... Definitely some opportunities there to, to work on those kind of things in this as part of this conversation. I'll come back to that point in just a second, but John, I just wanted to come back to you on the question about whether the white paper gives more clarity of direction. You probably haven't had a chance to go through the details, but I know there are changes to the institutional structures and kind of embedding these levelling up priorities as part of government decision-making, trying to make that more permanent. Do you think that will be effective? Does that help shift the balance to persuade the private sector to invest in your area? I hope so. Um, but I mean, as, as Kevin said, that the, the, at, a, at a national level, the the um, priorities shift, agendas change. Um, and I think one thing I've learned out of all this debate is, is that almost whatever's happening to national priorities and national agendas, levelling up, will carry on being key to Greater Manchester. So in a way, we can provide a local continuity in an area that almost sort of wherever the national debate gets to, we can provide that direction, set of priorities, institutions in a, a local area, uh, which gives some of that longer term uh, uh, continuity. And and so and that goes both for Greater Manchester's role in working with the rest of the north in in driving growth but also within the, within the city region uh, you know, e even if le leveling up as an agenda fell off the, the the government's priorities next week we would still have the challenge of actually how do you make sure that the the assets and the you know, the and the role in places like Oldham and Rochdale within Greater Manchester are all there driving growth and being part of how you level up within Greater Manchester and 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 fulfill that that ambition and potential 
that's going to stay wherever the national agenda gets to. So we will follow the national agenda. We'll we'll take opportunities when we'll get them. We'll work with central government when we can. But almost the whether or not the national agenda shifts, it will carry on at a at a local level. And an example example of that as well would be uh, uh, industrial strategies. I mean that they were, you know, all the rage. What was it? Two, three years ago, um, we signed up and developed a local industrial strategy at the time with, with, with government. And obviously, the national agenda has moved on. But our view locally was and is, we've got the right evidence base. Our businesses are bought into it. Our institutions are bought into it. It identifies the right issues. So we're just carrying on implementing it. And so you can devolution can provide a bit of that continuity at a direct direction at a local level, even as the national debate shifts. Sarah, before we go to Q&A from the audience, I just want to come, do you agree with Kevin that access to finance for SMEs or the appropriate type of finance is a major stumbling block in helping economic development? Yes, I think it is. And I, I think there's, a, I agree. I love the idea of, of regional mutual banks. I think it's a fantastic idea. Um, I think there's also the, um, there's a lot of uh, education in SMEs that we need to, to get over, which is that they can borrow. Um, and I think that a lot of them, still don't really have the skills or the understanding. There is a leadership and management issue that is being addressed uh, but, but in a business, but how you actually help a business to grow and how you make a business grow. I think it is a difficult time at the moment, especially with some of the companies that we deal with, because there is a level of indebtedness having taken on loans from COVID. There are costs of living increases, the pay increases that we want to see, uh, but are, are putting extra pressure on. Energy costs, all of that at the moment, mean that, uh, that small businesses are quite beleaguered um, in terms of finance and uh, I think we need and one of the work that some of the work that we do is to help them see longer than the immediate problems so that they can see how they can look to invest in their businesses where they can look for sources of money um, but I do agree with Kevin that that there is a, a distrust uh, for, in many businesses of the existing banking system um, and that does need to be broken I think some of the challenger banks have actually changed that so uh, I think that ha they have provided a different model for businesses um, but I think the, the link of local economic development and investment and SMEs is, would be wonderful to see. I think it would strengthen a lot of the uh, pride and uh, engagement that local businesses have with their communities by being able to borrow and invest locally. I think it's a great idea. Thank you. So I'll go down to questions that are coming in from the audience. Um, firstly, Ian Courtney from South Wales, who says he was formerly employed by a regional development agency asks, given the number of departments of state involved in the delivery of levelling up, how do you think the institutional frictions can be overcome or managed effectively? Um, John, I don't, do you want to start? You, you must have engaged with the many engines of central government in trying to navigate from your side. We do, and, and spend a lot of... Um, time and effort on those relationships with individual um, departments and, and hopefully do a, a bit of joining up at a local level, which it's very hard to do with a, a, at a national level. It, institutional friction, I think it, it, it needs strong um, central coordination within central government, if you see what I mean, uh, if, if that's going to be delivered. Um, and the... Uh, I mean, Secretary of State Michael Gove and, and Department for Leveling Up are going to have a key role to play in that. But so are the Treasury. I think thinking back, obviously it was it was George Osborne and the Treasury who were able to drive through those original um, uh, devolution deals um, but when when the Northern Powerhouse was uh, was made a priority. And I think it's in overcoming institutional frictions. I think it will need that kind of drive from the centre of the state if that's going to going to happen. Anyone else want to come in on this one? I would just say, can we just not have another layer on top of it to manage it? <laughs> would be nice. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so next question is coming from... Can I, can I just say, Jim, yeah. on that? I mean, I think it's, it's an extremely good question, but I do think... I, I worked for Michael Gove for four years, both in DEFRA and in Cabinet Office. All this stuff is about leadership. As one person can cut through all those departmental kind of um, those silos and stuff, it is Michael. He will absolutely make sure everybody buys into this. Um, he'll leave no stone unturned. He understands every other department. 
<coughs> probably as well as he understands his own. So, and has a very good relationship with, with the Prime Minister these days, and um, and uh, and Rishi Sunak as well. So, I, I really think that this will that will not be a barrier to success here. Right. Let's hope that continues to be the case beyond Michael Gove's term in office, <laughs> which presumably won't be any. <laughs> Um, the next question has come in from Peter Udale, um, who is probably mainly for you, Stephen, but if anyone else would like to come in, please do. Um, says, you talked about community development finance institutions as being an important tool for driving levelling up. What specific measures would you like to see to encourage these, to allow these institutions to achieve their bigger, a bigger impact? Well, I think um, Kevin actually hit the nail on the head a minute ago, and he was talking about this sort of access to finance point. It's really scale of scale of capital is key. I mean, the the, the record of, of some of the CFIs is very strong. As I said, the creating. I think the last stat I saw that roughly sixty percent of the jobs they create in the thirty-five percent most deprived communities. It's really heavily skewed to exactly what we're talking about here. But the the, the level of money that could flow through there is just many times what is happening at the moment. Uh, so, so I think the, the art, and this is where you know, we're working with, with partners in, in the CFI sector and also in, in mainstream finance, how do we unlock a, a greater flow of, of capital into the, these organisations? Uh, I, I mentioned government guarantee schemes as part of that, and that's, there's definitely been success where the British Business Bank guarantees have helped unlock some of this. But I think government could um, creatively think further about how it you know, tweaks the terms of some of those schemes, maybe to you know, support actually particularly deprived communities or those that are delivering higher levels of social impact. You could, you know, you could skew the schemes so they, they, they create a bigger incentive to drive drive capital in the right way. There's also a conversation, yeah, with the the more mainstream banks about how they engage with the the smaller players uh, to, to sort of meet their bigger sort of, I suppose, social responsibilities around providing finance more broadly. So uh, there's lots of things that need to be done, but ultimately yeah, it's, it's about creating a bigger stream of capital because I think, we, I think there's very clear evidence of the benefits of those kinds of forms of lending. Uh, but yeah, as Kevin said, the, the potential amount of cash that you can deploy there is pretty large and is many times what's happening at the moment. So it's, it's an exciting opportunity, but lots of people need to work together, including government, including the private sector, including organisations like ours to make that happen. I think there are some specific measures in the white paper around dormant assets and pension funds where they're suggesting legislative changes. Is it mainly about that or is it also a, a sales job to commit? To I, I think a bit of both. I, I think the, um, the, the next wave of uh, future dormant assets, which are being unlocked by the, the, separate, the piece of legislation that's going through Parliament now, I think there's a really interesting opportunity there to use some of that for sort of sustainable, scalable models of finance that really support, really support levelling up in, in, through this kind of channel. I think it's a really interesting opportunity. Um, the, the pension funds piece, um, I, I've only seen the, the, the summary of that, but again, I think it's really got a lot of potential. I uh, say there's some local authority pension funds already making really effective social investments. We're, we're working with, with several, uh, actually in some of the examples that we've already talked about today, local authority pension funds sort of dip their toes in that water, but, but they're, you know, they're very big pools of capital. And actually, given their, their remit to look after the, the people in their region, ultimately, through, through, their, through their pensions, actually yeah, thinking about how they use some of that money for social benefit within the remit of their financial restrictions, of course, is, is very interesting. And yeah, the fact that some are doing it shows that there's potential for it to happen more, I think. All right. Would anyone else like to come in on that one? Okay. Yeah, I would like to, if I may. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I could agree with everything Stephen said. And we've, we've worked with Stephen trying to get more money into CDFIs. And with Peter, indeed, a uh, very uh, good friend to the APPG. Um, I put CDFIs and regional mutual banks in almost in the same category the not-for-profit organisations, they create surpluses, which we can reinvest in our productive economies and financial inclusion. Crucially, they have a relationship with their customers, which we know big banks don't tend to have these days. And uh, it's seen as a kind of romantic ideal of banking. I don't buy into that at all. Handles Bank can show that you can have a good relationship with your customers and still make money. Um, so that's not true at all. The key stat here, and those stats are a little bit, but post-2008, um, in the UK... Commercial banks reduced SME lending by 25% in that five-year period, just as bank, just as businesses needed it. It was the old adage: to give the, bank, the business an umbrella when the sun's shining, and you take it away when it's raining. That's exactly what happened. In Germany, and increased the uh, cooperatives and the uh, and the mutual banking sector increased lending to SMEs by 20%. Patient capital. Create, creates that confidence between businesses and their bankers, which encourages long-term patient business growth, which is exactly what we want. There's interaction, intergenerational businesses. That's what we can do here. So it seems absolutely right. We need more money, more scale, dormant assets. We've been talking to Stephen about the regional mutual banks. 
Um, we, want, we think banks, commercial banks, should on-lend to, to CDFIs, so a portion of their money they get from the term funding scheme, for example, from SMEs, from Bank of England, lend on to CDFIs and regional mutual banks, and they can point to that in terms of the ESG and CSR and all that kind of stuff. Pension funds, yes, but also some money from Treasury that would be in a form of a loan rather than rather than giving money away, but would that would come back to the Treasury and would have a great economic purpose in the meantime. Right. The next question comes from an anonymous questioner um, who asks about institutional structures and asks what you all think will be the most effective uh, models to help deliver levelling up, for example, um, suggesting that something similar to the regional development agencies alongside mayors could work effectively. Um, do you think more institutional structures are needed to help levelling up, or do you think the current landscape and what's proposed will work? Uh, John, do you... I think Sarah made the point earlier about, please, let's have not have more tears in this um and i think i think we'd we'd um we'd go along with that um i think the, at, at a at a greater manchester level we, we're we're quite careful not to try and create another tier within greater manchester we, we are as a combined authority we are where our, our districts and boroughs come together in a single organization to operate together at a greater manchester level it, it's sort of not trying to put a another another tier into that and i i don't i, I i'm not sure sort of an, another recreating the rdas at a um at, at a regional level would be particularly helpful i think it's more about how do we how do we get the relationships right between the, those if there are county deals on the way or mayoral combined authorities, how do we get those relationships right into central government and how is central government coming together to have a sort of single conversation with those places? It's more about that than adding an extra tier for me. Right. Anyone can else? I, can I support that? <laughs> right. Sorry to in again. I mean, Ben Houchin calls himself a one-man elected, he calls himself an elected regional development agency. That's why he called, he's the mayor of Tees Valley. That's how we should look at this. We don't, as Sarah said, we don't, and John said, we don't need a, another institution, another layer. Just get that. That's the person. That's the person that should be that beacon. And they bring in all the people to get all the right people in the same room at the same time. Leps, regional mutual banks, local authorities, further education, universities, business, health, whoever else, on the same room. That's how it should happen. Fleet of foot and far more and far closer to the ground than a, a big kind of bureaucratic institution could be. Just, just, I'd say it's, it's the crucial thing here is about, about power, not about t tiers of structures and institutional wiring. So it's, it's about who, where does the control sit and decision-making sit? So not, not the, it doesn't matter exactly what the lines are on the organogram, but who actually makes the calls and has the control. And as a, as a, lapsed, as a lapsed central government civil servant, I think I'm allowed to say actually more, more of it should sit away from Whitehall and with, with, with other institutions around the country. Right, I think we've got a couple of questions live in the audience. Um, go over here first. Uh, Steve Bassam, um, co-director of Leveling Up and Place at Business in the Community. We've got something like 600 corporate members um, and I, I chair our task force on place and leveling up, which is looking at how we can encourage business engagement much more in leveling up. Uh, and I, I was interested in what Sarah said about uh, incentives. One of the elements that we've been looking at is incentives. Uh, and I'm rather hoping that um, we can see more of that so we can unlock the potential of businesses to work and drive levelling up initiatives in, in the regions. What other, my question really is this, what other incentives do you think we should uh, look towards other than more you know, enterprise zones and free ports and so on? We've been looking at tax and um, business rates and stuff like that and I just wonder whether if we can tweak those so that we can get a, a better level of engagement from business and what more we can do to unlock the potential of SMEs who really are the sort of um, driver uh, in, in many of these areas because they've got that they haven't got the capacity but they've got the ideas and the inspiration uh, and the initiatives so I think um, those are the sort of two areas that we're most interested in. I think taking the second 
point first. Um, I think that one of the uh, things that we would say about SMEs is giving them the recognition for what they're already doing. I mean, most of the SMEs are the ones who do the work experience, do all of the, the supporting local charities, the local football, whatever it is. They're the ones who are, are, are engaged in all of that, but they don't ever talk about it in CSR or ESG or any of those other terminologies. So part of what we're working at the moment is trying to work out how we can work with them to aggregate up what they do so that it, it, you can see the impact um, uh, at a different sort of scale. So I think the first bit is to prove to SMEs that they are already part of this agenda, that they're talking, that they are already key to it, um, and that they can do that not just on their own, but collectively. So that, that's, that's one point. I think, yes, the, 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 the sort of tax breaks and things would be great. Um, I, we've got a very successful um, enterprise zone in, in Stoke. It's one of the most successful in the, countries, in the country. Um, it would be great to see more of those sorts of opportunities. And I think also in the, in the levelling up paper, there is some, a shift of the brownfield land remediation money that's going to the West Midlands and to the north. It would be really good if that could be used to develop more enterprise zones, but perhaps for smaller businesses, so that you could actually do more around all of that, so that they can get a chance to have some of those tax breaks that are, are there already. Um, business rates, well, where do you start, really? Um, and uh, I think business rates needs a complete overhaul and, a, a, and a, a reassessment of what it's trying to do, especially in the light of what's happening around the high streets and, and, and town centres. There just needs to be something completely radical. It might be for a short period of time, but it needs, something needs to be done, and I think that would unlock a great, a great deal more in there. And in terms of um, the big corporates and the, the, you know, your companies, your 600 that you work with, which I know will include some SMEs, um, I think it is about their supply chain, actually really working with their supply chain, understanding where their supply chains are based, what their relationship is to their sense of place, um, and understanding how they can use what they're doing, their social value, their CSR, their ESG, uh, to really unlock that in their supply chain as much as possible. Stephen, Kevin, John, do you have any response on incentives? No. Great. Okay. Okay. Second question from the audience here. Thank you. Uh, James Westhead from Big Society Capital. Uh, underpinning all the, the, the levelling up discussion has been the fact that there isn't huge amounts of additional government spending available and there's been a, quite a lot of talk from the speakers about how to essentially spend existing checks smarter. Um, and I, I wondered, particularly perhaps Kevin would be able to advise on this, what, how difficult is it going to be to move money uh, and spend around within government? What are the obstacles to making a, a change of spending to, to spend differently rather than spend additionally? And uh, what, what is the best way to achieve that change? Yeah, um, thanks very much, James. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, as I said before, you know, governments aren't very good at picking winners. Um, so uh, a misallocation of capital is, is a real concern, which is why which connects into the last question, I really do favour lots of incentives. So, you know, and EIS, as anybody knows, Enterprise Investment Scheme, is a brilliant way to encourage, to crowd in private sector investment in companies. It's, the tax breaks are fantastic. If you enhance those tax breaks in these areas, you would encourage private sector capital to come into SMEs, and so, which wouldn't need any uh, direct contribution from government, of course. And... Um, so, but would encourage that that stimulate and stimulate the SME sector. Um, business angels, I said the the fund match on business angels, um, enterprise zones. I think are fantastic. They solve the business rates issue for most people. In in that there are no business rates in enterprise zones for companies that establish themselves there. Um, the treasury is always worried, of course, about lots of incentives that they would just displace investment so people, uh, a company that's in I don't know uh, Surrey will just relocate to to uh, Teesside just to get the investment but um, I think we've got to get over that really we've got to say that you know we've got to this is a once in our lifetime opportunity to get this right we've got to take a few risks there's got to be some incentives for businesses to open at any time really um, and to risk that capital because banks won't invest in pure startups you've got to get this angel investor, private sector money in there, um, which is more likely to pick the right businesses to invest in than government putting money down the line through perhaps even through regional growth funds, which which can sometimes choose the wrong projects and opportunities. So big fan of those incentives rather than simply business picking those winners. 
Anyone else like to come in on this one? John? No? Okay. Um, in that case, I'll go to one probably final question that's come in from online. Um, Sarah, I think you already touched on the question of government procurement. Um, but Stephanie Saucier asks, or Stefan Saucier asks, is the development of public-private partnerships with payments conditional on outcome, social outcomes a promising uh, path to go down? It's more conditionality in uh, spending of public money with the private sector. Do you think that's a, a way forward, or is that dead end? Well, I think it's definitely what Stephen said about you know buying your outcomes, not worrying about your inputs or whichever the way around it goes. Um, uh, and yes, I think it is something that will happen. You can't have, to, for most private sector companies, you couldn't do that, that it would be completely just on outcomes. There needs to be some sort of staged awareness of all of that. But, but yes, I think increasingly that, that would be a, is a good way for, for government to use their money. Um, and I think there's some, some successful ways in which that's done. I mean, Stephen will probably know more than me about, about the details. But um, I, think, I think the thing that what need, you need to happen, have alongside that is almost like a social value budget, um, you know, so that you can actually see that you're adding up and, and buying the outcomes that you want, not just looking. I think part of the problem at the moment is that each scheme is taken on, on its own rather than looking at what the cumulative impact would be um, around an area. So you might get one company that will say they'll do more about apprenticeships, whereas another company will say they'll do more about mental health. Well, there is no, um, you know, it might cancel each other out for all we know. Uh, there is no way of actually looking at it as a budget, as, a, as you would as a sort of financial budget. And so I think for an area to look at something like that would be quite interesting. And then they could have a way in which they could see what outcomes they really needed to buy at different times and flex accordingly. I don't know. Yeah, it won't surprise you to hear. I, I'm in sort of strong agreement with the, the question. I think there's a lot of potential for government to spend money differently, focusing on yeah, achieving social value uh, outcomes. And I think part of this is not just actually just having a better, better impact, but it's also, if you do it right, it builds a set of organisations, for example, you know, social enterprises, good examples, that, that actually have uh, a, both a sustainable business model, but also a social benefit at their heart. And if government actually supports the growth of more of those organisations, they then, yeah, in turn, sustain themselves, grow and deliver more benefit over the long term. So there's something about uh, government thinking about procurement, not just as, you know, what do we need tomorrow morning or, or next week, but w what sort of set of organisations in, wide, in, in business, in th the third sector, in the crossover between the two, do we actually want to develop? Uh, and that can be done locally or nationally. But I think taking that, that longer view actually has a, a lot of potential social benefit um, spilling out of it. Well, before we get to the end of our time, I wanted to finish by just asking each of you if there was one thing you would like to see to really help galvanise the private sector in delivering on levelling up, what would it be? Could well be something you've already touched on today, but if you had to pick one thing. I'll go in reverse order. So, Kevin, I'll start with you. Yeah, regional mutual banks. You know, I think it's a wonderful potential policy. Um, we'll help the SMEs. We'll provide that uh, finance into uh, the private sector. And, you know, choices can be made. And there's still the same kind of lending decisions are made. These, these, it's not altruism. These businesses have to stand on their own two feet. So it's, it might be well, well allocated capital, but capital that wouldn't be allocated without those regional mutual banks. So I think that's a wonderful opportunity for the UK as a whole and for regions like Yorkshire. Stephen. Uh, I, I'd ask government to take what they've done with using guarantee schemes very effectively during the COVID pandemic, uh, learn from that and, and increase the use of uh, effective guarantees from the British Business Bank or whoever to back social lenders, CDFIs and so on, who are really making a difference in the most deprived communities. I think there's a, a huge opportunity there. The balance sheet cost to government is not all that big if you do it right. I think there's a, a lot that can be done. John. For me, it's to follow through on the, the ambitions that have been set out in the, the white paper today to give more, to join up funding streams and to give more flexibility over funding, because I th think that's the best chance to set a direction and set a priorities for an area. And that's what encourages um, uh, private sector investment to come in alongside uh, public sector. And Sarah? Slightly differently, I'd like to see, I'm really excited by what the metrics are going to be on all of this. Um, and see how we can pull all of this together as a, as a, national, um, a, a national movement for levelling up, that it involves everybody and it isn't just pitting one area against another. It is actually a national project that we can all work and see how it can work together and we can see the metrics as we progress towards that.
And do you think that sort of clarity and sense of common purpose will actually galvanise the private sector to really see yes, this Yes, I think positive? it will. I think it will, because I think otherwise it's seen as... Try, for, for a developer, they're seen as having to see one project against another if they can see how the whole thing is working together. Mm. I think it will give them greater confidence, greater understanding about how their investments are going to be played out um, and their return on investment longer term as well. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Well, we are always very keen on uh, quantifying government activities, so we're very <laughs> much behind you on that one, on the importance of data. Um, so that brings us to a close. Thank you all very much uh, for joining us for today's discussion and big thank you to Big Society Capital for sponsoring today's event and to all our panellists for joining us both virtually and in person. Thank you very much. Um, please do note in your diaries the date of the next IFG event, um, which is happening uh, on Thursday. That would be tomorrow um, at two o'clock when we will be launching a new review of the Constitution in partnership with the Bennett Institute. So if that's the sort of thing that floats your boat, please do join us for that then. And thank you very much again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.